Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. In January, we'll have a new administration taking power in Washington, D.C., and it's a time for proposing new ideas and ways of going about business. A lot of attention will be paid to new policy proposals and programs, but another area that the administration will likely explore is how to better harness technology to improve existing government programs and services and support the citizenry. On today's episode, we're going to explore some concrete examples of how to do such work. And our first guest is the ideal person to help us think through this issue. Amanda Renteria, or uh, I like to say para todos que hablan español, Amanda Renteria. I am the CEO of Code for America and just excited to be with you today. Code for America is a nonprofit that addresses how government can work better in the digital age. When you think of government institutions, the American system is pretty remarkable. But how do we actually make it better? And there are only a handful of organizations who are particularly out there with this idea that if you could make government work for those who are hardest to reach, for those who are in crisis, then we can figure out this government that is an empowering institution that really can launch this country to that next level. And technology, I believe, is one of those levers that really can take government to that next level. Amanda is relatively new to CFA. She's been there since May, but she brings a wealth of experience. She's worked in government at the local, state, and federal levels, and even run for office in California. She says that her journey informs her work. I feel like over the course of my career, I've been able to kind of see all the different pieces. So some people might look at my career and go, okay, wait a second, rural Latino girl, you know, grew up in the middle of California, but worked for the state of Michigan for 10 years, lived in DC, oh, and then been on political campaigns, both at a national level, but also at a hyper-local level. I wish I could take people on that journey because it really does give you a sense of the complexity of who we are as a country. But there's also a through thread that people really do want our government institutions to work. Code for America's vision is that technological advances can contribute to broader prosperity for residents and for communities more broadly. For us, it's about moving from a way that was to a way that can be that is truly empowering all communities. And we have a particular focus on folks that have been left out of government or unseen by government systems. We often talk about Code for America that the two uh, biggest levers for improving people's lives at scale is technology and government, and we put them together. Our idea is that we sit shoulder to shoulder with public servants who are delivering food stamps. We sit shoulder to shoulder with folks who are trying to get tax benefits to low-income families. We work with DAs who want to make sure that people who were formerly incarcerated are not held burdened to a criminal record that shouldn't be on their uh, record anymore. Being able to sit there in partnership and say, how can we help? How can we use this powerful tool of technology? Sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's the process orientation around technology to make it better. But before you can take some of these steps toward better services, you have to think about digital access and whether everyone has the chance to tap into digital resources. This is something our next guest thinks about a lot. My name is Elena Stern. I'm a senior data scientist at the Urban Institute. The COVID-19 pandemic has really underscored that 
digital equity, which we define as having access to the broadband, the connected devices, as well as the digital literacy skills that are necessary for full participation in society. And I think we've really seen with the pandemic just how essential, just how prerequisite digital equity is for full participation. Elena sees a need for digital equity more than ever before. Folks have moved to schooling online in many cases. For some people, work has moved online. Governments are providing services increasingly digitally as in-person services become more difficult. You know, the sort of social contract is moving online as well. And so we're really seeing that in so many dimensions, inequities in access to connectivity and um, digital inclusion is really influencing people's ability to have, you know, education, have job opportunities, and to be able to interact with their governments. But even though broadband internet and network coverage for mobile devices is available, it doesn't necessarily mean it's affordable. I think a lot of times we see conversations about the digital divide focus on access to broadband. So quite literally, you know, where do households have the ability to connect to broadband internet and what kinds of internet speeds are available to them? But of course, if broadband is available, but it's not affordable, then there still isn't access in a meaningful way. And so I think, you know, the first step is looking more broadly at where broadband is affordable and where those gaps persist. In fact, a 2018 study found that at least 30 percent of households in U.S. cities lack the wireline broadband connection. So even today, you know, a huge percentage of households in urban areas and big cities in many cases don't have access to the broadband connectivity they need in some cases because it's unaffordable, in other cases because practices of digital redlining, which is where internet service providers avoid putting latest generation technology in low-income communities because they perhaps don't see the sort of profitability of those investments that certain communities don't have access to latest generation technologies. And so I think the government can do a lot in terms of, you know, really focusing resources on addressing not just expanding broadband connectivity, but also making sure it's available and affordable to households. Beyond the access gap, though, there's also a divide in how well people understand how to use digital tools. Another key piece is digital literacy skills. And we see key gaps in digital literacy skills that are becoming increasingly essential for workers to get jobs in the modern economy. And so, you know, the federal government can provide dedicated funding in some of its workforce development investments for digital literacy skills and digital literacy trainings, specifically focused on closing some of these gaps, um, especially racial gaps that we see in digital skills to make sure that there's an even playing field for all workers. The good news, some cities are doing a better job than others at trying to bridge this divide. The city of Portland, for example, has a COVID-19 sort of digital divide work group, and they've really made sure to make marginalized communities the sort of forefront of that effort. And one way they're doing that is by working with sort of equity fellows that the city previously hired because of their connections and their deep relationships and experience working with these communities. And so, you know, working with these equity consultants to say, well, how do we specifically target and reach out to these communities and make sure that they are being served by these efforts and sort of putting those communities at the center of their efforts? This idea of human-centered design is really powerful, and it's a concept that drives the work of Amanda and Code for America as well. Not all systems were intended to be equitable. 
And so it's important that as we evaluate how is it reaching someone, we start with the very premise of maybe it wasn't ever intended to reach certain folks. And so if we start there, we know we're starting in a space where we're really open to understanding how to do it in a way that can reach all people. And then the second is putting those people right at the center of it. We talk about people-centered. There's a lot of different words for it, but it's really putting yourself in the shoes of the folks who are going to use that service. Amanda talked about how that approach works. It's an orientation around putting yourself literally in the shoes of the folks who are receiving those food stamps. Or um, in the case of we work on the earned income tax credit and people who spend hours in line getting volunteer help because that's the only day they can make it in order to get their earned income tax credit back and what that experience is like. And when you do stand in that line for four hours with the mom holding onto her two kids waiting for volunteer help, you can't help but go, wait a second, why can't this be mobile? Why can't you have a chat function on here in Spanish and English and every other language? And you don't have to stand in line for four hours, right? It becomes really clear when you actually put yourself in another person's shoes to go, oh, this whole system wasn't intended for this person standing in this line, although we claim the policy that's supposed to exactly target them. And that's the change we're looking for, what we call a government that is people-centered. Amanda says if we look at programs with this framing, we can figure out how to reach populations that are often underserved. A great example of innovative work that Code for America has done is their work on the Earned Income Tax Credit, or the EITC. Quick backstory. The EITC is basically the country's largest anti-poverty program. It says that if you're working and make less than a specific amount, you should receive additional support from the government in the form of a tax credit to help make your income look more like a living wage. It incentivizes people to work, which a lot of people from across the political spectrum like, and provides a stronger safety net for families that are struggling. It's also an entitlement, which means that if families qualify for the support, then they should have access to that support without question. However, and this is a big however, not everyone who is eligible actually takes advantage of the EITC because it takes some work to apply. Even in the best of times, families that could benefit miss out. And in COVID times, it's even tougher. And this is where Code for America stepped up. COVID happens. You have a tax system where you have volunteer sites all around the country for folks who are making 66000 or less. Generally, what happens is those families go to a volunteer site and they get help in filling out the forms. COVID happens and everyone says, oh my gosh, we can't have anyone coming in. How do we make sure that we put this now digitally? And do we do it as a desktop app or we do it as a mobile app? Because our stuff is mobile app, right? Because usually it's someone filling it in for you. So Amanda's team developed the first free mobile app that figured out where people needed help with the EITC process the most. We built an app program that was very simple questions. And we quickly learned that people need help, right? That these questions in and of themselves are confusing. So we create a quick chat function. And all of a sudden, throughout that entire process, not only is it faster and quicker because we're able to ask very simplified questions that we've done research on to know that how to get to the answer, but... Folks are able, if they need, to press that chat function to talk to somebody about their specific situation. At the end of that process, you have a very easy tax form that goes to the IRS and gets your information and it comes back to you. It's a really cool user-friendly system and you can check it out at getyourrefund.org. But Amanda makes it clear her team at Code for America doesn't want this to be their role forever. At the very beginning, the idea is we do it to show what's possible. 
once you get the proof case, you begin to show people this is possible. And then the next part of that is helping governments do it themselves. And it goes from us showing what's possible to seeing empowered public servants who are excited about a new way of governing, a new way of implementation. And Amanda sees this particular solution as a bit of a stopgap. Ideally, she'd like to see us do what a lot of other countries do already. We would love it. Instead of you having to fill out a form, it would be really fantastic if you got either a letter, a mail in the, uh, an envelope in the mail that says, hey, here's what we have for your W-2 forms. Here's what we have. Here's what the government seems like you're owed back in your taxes. Is this right? Can you verify this? Or you get a, on your phone, you get a text that says, here's what your numbers come out to. Do you want this as direct deposit or would you like us to send you a check in the mail? Wouldn't that be great? No more TurboTax, just a postcard from the IRS in the mail. 30 countries do this already. The government already has these tax forms, right? That's the kind of vision we hope to get to. But in order to get there, we know we've got to put it online. We know we've got to get to a place where we're um, thinking about simplified questions and ID verification and some of these back-end things that are possible. And we know we've got to reach communities who aren't being reached now in order to truly get to everyone who deserves those tax refunds back. So that's a pipe dream for now. But another example of where Code for America has made a real difference is working to clear the records of people who had committed a crime and followed all requirements to pay their dues back to society. Just to set context that we are coming off of decades of criminalization and really an over-criminalization. And so part of what we recognize is one in three Americans have a criminal record. And we recognize how much that harms. There's 47,000 47, different ways that, that it harms your ability to do things in your world. You can't go on school trips. You can't get professional licenses, housing, jobs, et cetera, are really affected if you have a criminal record. Code for America started to ask the question, well, why do people have these criminal records? Well, as it turns out, in order to truly, after you've paid your debt to society, in order to expunge your record, requires you often to go into a court, to get legal aid, to pay costs. It's completely prohibitive. One of the things some experts have said is once you get in, you can never get out, even once you get out of jail. And so what we recognize is there's this whole host of folks, particularly black and brown communities, who are burdened with a criminal record for the rest of their lives. Code for America then began to explore what they could do to address the issue. Well, some of the problem here is this is easy. We can automatically clear records if we just have the systems talk to each other, if there's a will of the DA, if we get communities to talk about how much potential is being held back because of this, we can be successful. And so we started to work with San Francisco DA and it moved from one one county to the next county to the next county where we could actually get through 100,000 records in, I think it's under five minutes. And all of a sudden we took off the technology burden of going through all that paperwork and getting through it. Code for America has so far worked in California, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Utah, and elsewhere to help DAs and counties expunge criminal records. Just to give you sort of the broad picture, in 2018 and 2019, 28 laws were passed in 25 states. In the state of Pennsylvania, when they did a clear my record, 2.8 million records were sealed. The state of Michigan, the governor just signed about a month ago, the first, their first ever automatic clearance. It sort of depends on how it's, it's implemented. 
county by county, but we're expecting the thousands to million, again, sealed records there. I mean, when you think about the workforce, it is unleashing. When you think about the just the empowerment, it is unleashing. When you think about righting the wrongs of our justice system, I think that is fundamentally changing not only how people view the system, but how we view folks who have had a criminal record and really getting this right once and for all and really correcting some of the wrongs of the past. Amanda and team understand that the goal is not to own all of this work, but to show the way and then hand it off to government. What's interesting about it is it's not, we don't want to take over the work. The very beginning, the idea is we do it to show what's possible. You can do this. Like how many times we hear, we can automatically clear records. Oh oh yeah, we can. Let us show you, (laughs) right? We can do it. Once you get the proof case, you begin to show people this is possible. And then the next part of that is helping governments do it themselves. Our whole entire idea is we want government to do this themselves. And what you find is incredible public servants who often welcome us saying, yes, you helped us think through this differently, worked out the kinks on the other end, and we can do this and we're better for it. These are a couple of examples of innovation, but Amanda believes that we have the chance now to make some important changes to the way that government thinks about technology. So I think there's a unique window of opportunity that civic tech has right now, not simply because there's a new administration coming in, but because we are coming off of a required digital access world, right? And for a lot of services, for a lot of meetings, we're all on Zoom. We're all learning how to do things in a new and different way. Both the idea that people are looking for or have to do new and different way, combined with a new administration, new leadership injected into the federal government, is a window of opportunity that at least hasn't existed in my lifetime for really changing systems in a way that can work differently for all people. That for all people is also really important. So how can we do a better job of targeted outreach to make sure that we're actually hearing the voices of all residents equitably? Amanda says her team's drive for solutions comes from client stories that explain what people are experiencing. The heavyweight of COVID right now, we know there's more people we need to reach because we talk to them. And that not only continues our focus on what we do, but it's really why there's such a passionate code for America to get to the answer, because we know the answer means someone else has the food they need or the cash resources they need or the ability to get a job. Our value add is we get in there. And our team wants to solve it. I can't tell you how many times you'll hear our team go like, why does this policy exist? Because you can see the direct correlation that it doesn't lead to like outcomes, right? It doesn't lead to somebody getting what they need. But our dogged focus on making it work, making it work really well um, for its, for the final outcome is really what guides our thinking. In closing, Amanda thinks government institutions have the potential to drive those better final outcomes. I think oftentimes people look at government as something that gets in the way. We've got to be in a place and we believe that government can actually be an empowering force if done right and well. And that part is equally important, especially right now as we think about the lowest level in trust in government institutions right now. When you go around the world and people used to revere the kinds of government institutions that America had because they were empowering, because they invested in people and industries. And we need to get to that place again. And our view is we can, if we have tangible ways to show people how it can work and how it can actually do it with dignity and respect and really empower people. Despite all the rhetoric that you might hear in politics about government doesn't work and 
you know, it's broken. The truth is there's a lot of people trying to make it work. And if we can orient folks around how do we have the best government institutions in the world where they are revered again, the potential there is pretty magnificent. As always, we'll close with some key takeaways. Here are three things to remember. One, technology is changing fast and has the potential to create new opportunities for cities and government agencies to become more effective at providing services and reaching communities who are most vulnerable. Two, making those changes requires that groups like Code for America start with the end user, the people who will be trying to access those services or supports in mind from the start. This human-centered design puts people first and shifts the way we usually implement policy. And three, the COVID-19 pandemic has really underscored that digital inclusion is influencing people's ability to get an education, seek out job opportunities, and be able to interact with their government. Closing the digital divide in terms of both access and use will be critical going forward. So that's our show. Big, big thank you to Amanda Renteria and Elena Stern, and thanks to producer Jacinth Jones and our sound editor, Riley Byrne at podigy.co. If you have a minute, please hit us up with a rating on iTunes or even leave a review there. We always read those reviews and we love to hear from you. As always, we appreciate the support. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team and on behalf of my two kids that are still co-producers. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you learned something. From PBS.